I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. We're going to look at chapter 1 today, continuing our series titled, Fall on Your Knees. Fall on your knees, because that's what we want to do as a result, and we're going to see that in the story of the, of the wise men next week, that they fell on their knees. But until then, we've got to figure out, who is Jesus? Who is he in fact? And so we want to look at this idea and answer the question, who is Jesus? That's what Matthew does at the beginning of his gospel. He's answering this pivotal question, who is Jesus? Because if we don't understand who Jesus is, we won't live for him. We won't live, why should we? If he's just a, a good teacher, why would I want to live for a good teacher? I would appreciate a good teacher. I don't live for them. They're not my Lord. They're just somebody who has good suggestions for my life. And I think that we typically look at Jesus as one who has good suggestions for our life. And if we live according to his suggestions, then therefore we will live a great life. And the reality is, no, it's more than that. He's not a teacher who's a suggestion giver. If he's who Matthew says he is, he's Lord and should be lived out as Lord in our lives. And in fact, you, you, you see Jesus asking this question of his disciples. He's in Caesarea Philippi and he says, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others said Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And then he asks them, but who do you say that I am? That's the question hanging in the air for each and every one of us. We've got to answer that question. Who do we say Jesus is? Peter said, you are the Christ. Who do you say? That Jesus is. Do you agree with Peter? Do you agree with Matthew? Matthew gives us some powerful stuff in, in, in who Jesus is. In fact, when you look at the first part of the chapter, the genealogy that we looked at last time, we know that he is the son of David, son of Abraham. That's his point. That Jesus is fully man of the line of David, of the line of promise. He's not only fully man, he's royalty. He's royalty just as much as, as we talk about royalty in the, in the British Isles in, in the UK. We look at the royals and we're fascinated with those folks. We should be just as fascinated with the royalty of Jesus. And so here's this, uh, he's, he's proving to us Jesus is of the line of David. But then he goes on in this next part of the chapter, the last part of this chapter, and says he's virgin born. That's crucial to our faith, folks. There's an early creed, the Apostles' Creed, that, that uh, has been around a long time. Nobody knows exactly when it got written. Uh, it showed up around 390 AD, but it's obviously older than that. Very Trinitarian. I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. It has those as statements in the, in the creed. But the beginning of the creed starts out and it says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Those are issues crucial to our faith. Crucial to our faith. If Jesus was not who he said he was, then he's not the Messiah and he's not our Savior. And so it's crucial that we understand who is Jesus, in fact. And it should change the way that we live our lives. So it's important for us as we wrestle through these issues. And I want you, as, you, as we go through this message, I want you to identify 
what you believe about Jesus. And then I want you to think, what does Matthew say he is, in fact? And if yours doesn't line up with what Matthew says, then I want to encourage you to change because God's word tells us exactly who Jesus is, in fact. And you may say, oh, I, I know who he is. I, I, I follow him. I, I live for him. I, I do things for him. That's great. But we need to understand who he is exactly. Because when we look at, uh, at, at who Jesus is through the centuries, there's been a lot of debate about it. I mean, obviously, during Jesus' day, who do people say that I am? Uh, well, how about Elijah? How about one of the prophets? You ask today, who is Jesus in fact? And you'll hear all sorts of different answers about who he is. If you talk to a Mormon, he'll say, well, Jesus became God. He wasn't always God. He became a God. If you are talking to somebody who's a Jehovah Witness, and that's identified, I have it here, Arianism, or, or Arian, uh, uh, Arius was a uh, early guy that uh, had some questions about Jesus, and he said, well, he was the first created being. And so if you talk to a Jehovah Witness, they'll say he's a first created being. He's, he's a, a super angel or a, a demigod. They wouldn't use those terms, but that's basically what he is. But he's no more than that. He'd be a created being and not God. There was an early uh, idea about Jesus saying, uh, it's called docetism, and, and that's not a, uh, something you do in, you know, square dancing. Uh, but docetism believed that Jesus only appeared to be human. He wasn't actually human. He was divine, and he was kind of an apparition or a ghost. And the, the church council, and I'll talk about this in a minute, of Chalcedon, said Jesus is fully God and fully man. And that's what we hold at Mansfield Bible Church, that he's fully God and fully man. Now, I'm going to show you this next slide, and don't get confused by it, but I want to give you a little bit of an understanding of what does that mean. What that means, fully God, fully man, it started out with a church council, and you think, well, what's this church council? Church council was a group of church leaders that got together, bishops and pastors and, and other church leaders, elders and churches. They got together in 325. Now, why so late? I mean, Jesus died in 33. Why did they wait so late to, to talk about who Jesus is? That was their first opportunity to do so because they were so persecuted. The early church was so persecuted until Constantine came to Christ in 313 AD and then the Edict of Milan in three. Uh, I mean, 312 and then 313, the Edict of Milan, uh, he made Christianity an acceptable religion and it became the most prominent religion in the Roman Empire at that time. And so he paid for, Constantine paid for these guys to come together and they said it was like a, because of Diocletian's persecution, a lot of the ones that he invited and paid their way couldn't even come because they were in such bad health. Others that came had uh, fingers missing, hands missing, eyes gouged out because of the persecution of Diocletian for their faith. He says it was like a hall of martyrs. And here were these guys, they came together and said, we need, to, we need to nail this down because there's a guy that's walking around named Arius and he's saying that Jesus is, is uh, uh, just, uh, just human, that he's kind of a superhuman. And so they, they said, what, is, what do we believe about this? We believe that Jesus is two natures and not just human. And so they came up with one person and two natures, fully God and fully man. 
Another guy came along, Nestorius, and he says, oh, well, they're, they're two separate people. It's, it's, it's uh, Jesus and God kind of just kind of loosely held together. Uh, and, and he said, no, it's not that. He's one person, not two people. And then a guy named Apollinarius came along. And so the council in Ephesus in 431 came, I mean, Apollinarius said, well, Jesus is a human body and a divine soul. And so he's just kind of a merged individual. And, he, and they were saying, no, that's not it. And so in Chalcedon, in 451, they were addressing another guy, Eutychius, who's, who basically said, no, Jesus is not God and he's not man solely. He's just kind of this new mixture of God and man. Put him in a mixing bowl, Jesus, uh, you know, God, man, mix it up. And you've got this third substance and that's what Jesus is. And so in Chalcedon, they came up with this statement, looking at the scriptures. All of these people were wrestling with the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? And in Chalcedon, they came up with this statement, and I've abbreviated it. It says, we then, the fo uh, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach, and I should say men, to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, perfect in manhood, truly God, truly man, in two natures, without confusion, addressing Eutychius, who confused the natures, without change, addressing Arius, who said, oh, well, God can't be involved in change, so couldn't take on humanity, without division, addressing Apollinarius, who said, oh, he's this and he's this, he's God in body, man in soul, I mean, uh, God in soul, and then without separation, addressing Nestorius. And you look at that and you realize in our own day, we have all these different views of who Jesus is in fact. Some will say, if you talk to a Muslim, oh, he's, just a, he's, the, he's a great prophet. Along the lines of what you saw even in the first century, who is Jesus? And so the question we have to ask ourselves is when you're thinking about Jesus, who is he? And what I believe based on my study of the scriptures is that Jesus Christ is truly God. Truly man, fully God, fully man. One person, two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. And that's where we are at Mansfield Bible Church. We take and follow the Chalcedon Creed in that regard. Of those guys who have gone before us, who wrestled with these issues, and that's the statement they came with. And when you look at what Matthew says here, in the first part of the chapter, he's saying he's fully man. He follows the line of Abraham. He follows the line of David. He, he, is, he is truly of the line of people, of, of, of generations of people. And then in the last half of the chapter, virgin born, Emmanuel, God. Stop there. We say God with us and kind of, no, God. He's saying he is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. Jesus is deity. And that's something that's crucial for us to understand. We're not talking about just this nice moral teacher, not this nice prophet. We're talking about God incarnate. God came for us. Jesus is truly and fully God. And so when we look at that, we go back to the passage and let's read it together. Or I'll read it and you can listen. In verse 18 it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to the son, to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So we look at this passage, and there's, there's a lot here. It says, now the birth of Jesus took place in the following way. And the, I, uh, the, the word birth looks at the origin of Jesus, not origin as God, but origin as, as the God-man, where he came about in terms of how he came into this world. And he says, when, Mary, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now we need to understand this whole betrothal process. The betrothal process was a two-step process for marriage for in, in the ancient uh, Jewish world. The two-step process was you went through two ceremonies. One ceremony was uh, for that betrothal uh, idea, and betrothal was, is stronger than our idea of, uh, of uh, 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 engagement that we have today. We have a two-step process, too. We have engagement, and then we have uh, the wedding ceremony, right? And they, they usually are set apart. In our engagement process, a guy gets down on one knee and, and has a ring in his hand and says, will you marry me? And that's what we see traditionally. And so, but there's no legally binding thing. But they went through an actual ceremony. And during the ceremony that the two moms would either break a plate or you see the guy stepping on a glass and breaking it. And, and this was the idea that they are, they are now uh, uh, betrothed to one another in the betrothal process in ancient Israel, they also signed a contract. And it was usually the parents who signed the contract for their, for their children. And they, they got married really young uh, in those days, uh, 13 or 14 for women, uh, 14 or 15 for men. And so it was, I mean, it was very young. And, and, uh, uh, and so when you looked at that, you thought, here they sign these contracts or this contract to be betrothed. They would call each other husband and wife, but then they didn't live together for about at least nine months to a year. And the whole purpose of the nine months to a year was to, to uh, demonstrate a lot of different things, but one was that, uh, that uh, sh- she wasn't pregnant. And, and so that was one of the things that uh, was very important and crucial to the process because if that happened, then uh, there was another part of the process that would come about and that we find in Deuteronomy uh, where he deals, they deal specifically with that issue. It says, if it happens... If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married, that's the betrothal, pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town, so the city gate, and stone them to death. So that was a public thing that would happen. And so you look at this passage, you look back in this passage, and you realize they're dealing with that. Betrothed to Joseph before they came together, found to be with child. And you think, okay, he could have brought her to the public gate, and could have had her stoned to death. 
along with whoever that other person might be. And so that was the thing. And so that betrothal period was a very legally binding. You had to divorce in order to get out of it. And then what they would do is they would have the second part of the uh, ceremony. And this was one that they would have under uh, material with four poles usually. Uh, you see some very fancy ones today if you were to, to, uh, to Google uh, the uh, Jewish wedding ceremony. And they would still have this and that that... Under that canopy is the idea, uh, has, carries a lot of different ideas, but it was uh, in ancient times, a uh, groom would put up a tent and that tent would be a place where they would have this wedding ceremony or hoopah uh, a ceremony. And so they would have this ceremony and then they would be officially married. In Jewish weddings today, that's changed. Uh, so if you were looking at a Jewish situation today, they usually sign the contract either at the wedding ceremony, the hoopah ceremony, or they do it a couple of days before. And so it's, it's, a, it's a lot closer together instead of uh, a year or something in between the two. And so you see the, uh, this betrothal period, they were legally married. If, if one of them would have died, the other one would have been called a widow or a widower. But because... They were betrothed, and she was found with child. He was in a dilemma. A scandal has just happened. A scandal for him. If he goes along with the marriage, then people are going to go, oh, well, you, it must have been you. And so then he would, he would, his integrity would be questioned. And so he's, he's wrestling with us. He's struggling with this idea. And we know that he's wrestling because in verse 20 it says, but as he considered these things, what were the things he considered? He considered that he was a just man, verse before, unwilling to put her to shame. He wasn't going to go to the city gate. Resolved to divorce her quietly. He was going to go before a rabbi with two witnesses, two males uh, not related to their family as witnesses and he would divorce her privately, quietly and not publicly. So here was a guy, Joseph, who loved his wife. He was brokenhearted, I'm sure. He was wrestling with these issues. He wants to maintain his righteousness uh, that he has, his right standing and yet he wants to, uh, to show her grace but as he considered these things, it says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Not the angel of the Lord, but an angel of the Lord. Appears to him in a dream. And, and in fact, in Matthew, you, we see this idea of being uh, communication in a dream often. We see it here in chapter 1. We also see it in chapter 2, uh, in verse 12, where it says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the wise men uh, went another way. It says in verse 13, uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Herod's coming to kill him, go to Egypt. And then in verse 19, he, uh, he was uh, uh, told in a dream, Herod's died, now go back into the land of Israel. But then he has another dream in, in verse uh, 22 uh, where he withdrew not into Israel because of Archelaus, but he went up into the Galilee area. And we see that all of that was in fulfillment of different prophecies of Scripture. And so here in a dream, and you ask yourself, well, does God still communicate that way? No, not really. In fact, what we see in the New Testament, according to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, in Hebrews 1, 1, it tells us that it says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
And so we don't need dreams and we don't need prophets coming along. We don't need other ways of communication. God's clearly given us all that we need for life and godliness here in the scriptures. And so we can look to them. We can understand what God has for us without requiring something additional. But here in the first century, God communicated in a dream. And he appears to Joseph and he says, Joseph, son of David. Now, he's focused on Joseph here in this story. If you go to Luke's gospel, he focuses more on Mary. And it makes a lot of sense because in, in Luke's gospel, he's got Mary's genealogy. Here in Matthew's gospel, it's Joseph's genealogy. So he's dealing with Joseph in this birth narrative. And he says, Joseph, son of David. He makes an emphasis. You are the son of David. You are the one who's of the line of royalty. He wants to make sure that that's clearly pointed out. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, I think it's really important to understand when you look at, when you look at a section to try to understand what is Matthew's focus here? Why, what is he really focused on in this, in this little short uh, vignette about Jesus' life? His focus is on the virgin birth. And the reason I say that is because how many times he repeats the idea or the statement of how Jesus was born. He uses the word betrothed. So everybody would know they, they weren't living together yet. He, he makes sure that even if you understand the word betrothed, you understand what he's focused on. It says, before they came together, verse 18, she was found with child from the Holy Spirit. So there's a third time in that, in that one short section. And then he says here in this section, verse 20, is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. So he repeats that again. He wants to make sure this is from the Holy Spirit and not in some pagan mythology where the gods come down to people and, and they, they, they live together and they have demigods because that would fall under one of the false views of who uh, 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 Jesus is. He says he's conceived from the Holy Spirit uh, in verse 23, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive. And some would say, well, if you look back at Isaiah, the Hebrew word used there isn't the most important or the most clear word on virgin. It's a word that simply means a young virgin or a young maiden. And so uh, they would, but the reality is, is if this is written by the Holy Spirit through Matthew, which scripture claims to be, then God's interpretation of what Isaiah said is, this means virgin. And then he also says, he'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. If he's God, if he's called God with us, he can't be called God with us if he's something lesser than that. If he is somehow just a demigod, if he was somehow just created because God's not created, if he is somehow anything else other than fully God and fully man. And then he goes on and says, he took her as his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Six times, eight verses, he makes it clear he's talking about the virgin birth. That Jesus was born by the Holy Spirit without Joseph uh, in, involved in the process. That this one who has come is God incarnate, God in the flesh. He's fully God and fully man. And that should change us when we think about what that means, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. 
He is our Lord. What does that mean? It means that we follow him. It means that we live for him. It means that we, do, we don't just go about doing what we want to do. We do what he leads us to do. And see, here's the question. If I'm not following him in some areas of my life, I need to go back and ask, what do I believe about Jesus? Because something is causing me not to live for him. Something is causing me to live for myself rather than for him. You see, it should change us. It should change us dramatically. Knowing who Jesus is changed my life. I was a music major. I was going to be an orchestra teacher my whole career. And then I was going to retire. I would have come under the rule of 70. I would have been retired long ago. But because I believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, one person in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, because I believe that about who Jesus is, it changed my whole direction in life. In the last 40 years, five years in seminary, and the last 35 years in ministry here in Mansfield, it changed me. It made me different. And it, and it changes me not just in terms of my overall direction, but in my day-to-day, -day, how I live my life. And it should change each one of you. It doesn't mean that you should go into to, to full-time ministry. It means that you should be full-time ministry to people. We're all in full-time ministry. Yours may be in a, in a particular job. I had somebody this morning say that, that what they decided to do after the, after the series on prayer, and as we've talked about who Jesus is, they said they went to work this week, and they asked everybody at work, what can I pray for you? Blew people away. Everyone, there's not a single person that didn't want prayer, and it was received positively. What can I pray for you? Uh, my, uh, my church has been talking about prayer. And, and so they, they, they said, I want to pray for courage that I'll do that in my neighborhood. And I was thinking, that's what knowing who Jesus is does. It changes us. It makes us different. It may change your whole direction in life. It may change who, uh, how you respond to people in your situation in life. But it will change you. If he really is fully God, fully man, he is our Lord. He is our Savior. If he's not virgin born, he is not our Savior. He can't be because he has to be fully God so he didn't die for his own sin first because that would have consumed everything. He had to be fully man because he couldn't die for that which he didn't assume and he assumed humanity so that he could die for humanity. And so when we look at that, we realize Jesus is the coming Messiah, the, one, the Messiah that was supposed to come. Jesus is the one who is fully God and it changes who I am. It changes me. It makes me different. It makes me live my life differently. When I wake up in the morning, I talk to him. When I go to bed at night, I talk to him and I talk to him through the day. When I have opportunities, I share my testimony and I, I talk to people about Jesus. And that needs to be the way we just live our lives, that we're transformed and that we're different. Because he said... She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for, and gives us the reason, for he will save his people from their sins. And we're thinking, wait a minute, I wish you would have saved me from a whole lot of other stuff. I wish you would, have, uh, the people reading it during his day would have said, I wish you would have saved us from the Romans. That's what we wanted to be saved from. But Jesus knew saving people from their sins is the most important thing about us. Because it will change culture. It will change us. It will change families. 
and said, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. It was what God had promised. Emmanuel, God with us. So my question this morning is this. Who do you say that he is? And why isn't it making a difference? What would it take for it to make a difference in our lives? That's what I want to ask. And what that means is, is that when we look at our focus as a church, when we look at what Jesus has said uh, that Christ followers do, they love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, love their neighbor as their self, as themselves. And so we look at that and we think, okay, what that means is, and we have three words that we use in Mansfield Bible Church, engage, connect, and impact, so that I engage God or I abide in him, that that's a focus in my life, that I abide in him, that my relationship with him is paramount, because if, if I'm not abiding him, nothing else matters. Nothing else is going to be transformed because it's only going to be done by me and not because of, my, of what he does through me. Jesus said, you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. So I abide in him. I connect with those around me. I begin to look around because of Jesus. I begin to look at other believers and say, what can I do to help them? What can I do to encourage them? When, they're, when they have a death in the family, when they have a house that's burned, when they have other things going on, and we get involved and we get engaged in those things in their lives. And then I have an impact beyond at work, in my neighborhood. My life is different. Because of who he is. Father, we come to you this morning. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came to die for us. And Lord, I pray that it would make a difference in our lives. I pray that it wouldn't be just something casual that we believe and that we just say, oh yeah, I believe that. Lord, I pray that it would change us, transform us, make us different, make us live differently, make us relate differently cause us to think differently in terms of our focus in life, that our focus in life would not just be on our next vacation, but it would include what are we doing for, for you? What are we doing to transform this world? What are we doing because Jesus is truly God and truly man? And Lord, I pray that you would help us in the coming weeks to answer that question and to ring the bell, to step up and do those things that, that that means and that Christ would truly be formed in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.